for all those up Swindon fans. But you're not there yet. In it goes! Oh, it's gone in! Richard left foot in! What a volley! It's the stuff of champions! It's the stuff of dreams! And Donate races it on goal and Donate! 3-0! Snake from Tompkins. What a goal from Glenn Murray. He's hardly had a touch. On he'll go. Michael Smith. Into what he's Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Together, a Brighton Over Albion podcast. Uh, I am recording about seven minutes after the final whistle at Old Trafford. Um, Sundays, Sunday afternoon, Sunday late games are always a bit rough uh, because I don't have much time to do any prep whatsoever and I have time frames to stick to. So this will be one of those games where we kind of freestyle it. Um, But there's plenty to talk about off the back of that. So let's start from the beginning. Um, We have a real hard set of games coming up. Um, Four of them. We have Leicester at home. coming up next after the international break we've just had Manchester United away uh, and then we have Liverpool away and Arsenal away um, not sure which order those two are in uh, but we have a set of real tough games coming up um, and if I was to order them in level of difficulty I think uh, I think Leicester is probably labeled the the easiest if you can label Leicester at home the easiest um, if any of them are easy uh, I think that is obviously the most preferable one for us right because we're at home um next up would be Arsenal away because I think that Arsenal are the worst team of the four um and they are really poor and not too far away from Emery being given the boot so uh Arsenal are comfortably the second easiest in inverted commas um Manchester United next away at Old Trafford because going away to Old Trafford is never an easy place to go as we've just seen today um and then Liverpool away of course uh which is really just murder city um so we're we're coming off the back of a absolute hammering at Old Trafford um and we were beating all ends up so let's go over the uh the the lineup first of all so we lined up um in a 4-4-2 formation, which is what I was hoping not to see today. Um, I think that, uh, as I said last week on the podcast, I thought that Rashford, um, Martial, Pereira, uh, Daniel James, all these players um, suited us to play a back three a lot more than a back four uh, in the way we did. Um, And it looks to me like I was sadly vindicated. Um, It is not often, I think, that Potter has made mistakes, um, but today I think he made a couple of them. Um, and I hope that he learns from it. Um, he hasn't got as far as he has without learning from his mistakes, so I, I have faith that he will. Um, first of all, I think that starting Trossard was absolutely the, absolutely the right move. Um, I think bringing Trossard in was kind of a no-brainer uh, with the way he played, but putting him where he put him was uh, not a great move. Um, putting him as a proper left winger um not where we want to see Trossard play, uh, not where he has excelled when he's came on as a substitute, and not where he played uh, against Southampton and the teams early on when he played so well. Um, Trossard is a much higher attacking midfielder. Um, He really shouldn't be playing that far back. And he struggled. Um, You could see he struggled. Uh, Defensively, he didn't do his job. Um, You know, he he made two total tackles. Um, That was the least on the team, barring Aaron Connolly. Um, He offensively wasn't very potent at all today. Um, He got two key passes away. Uh, He was dispossessed and had a really poor touch that led to them getting the ball back. Um, He had no shots, uh, no successful dribbles. He won no fouls. He wasn't offside, which I suppose is a good piece. Um, but overall he was he was really poor today um, he had 21 passes uh, of those on the pitch um, there was only one worse than that uh, was Neil Mopai everybody else had more um, 
and his passing percentage accuracy was 66.7%. Uh, that was the second lowest, um, again, behind Martin Montoya, um, somebody I thought was incredibly poor today as well. So I think that Trossard was played in a position that incredibly uncomfortable for him, didn't suit him at all, um, and I thought that the formation was all sorts of wrong. Uh, but moving on to... The stats overarching the game. So uh, overall, uh, I thought it was a bit of an absolute disaster, really. Uh, total shots, 21 shots for Manchester United, 6 for the Albion. Now, when you look at the shots taken, it doesn't really get a lot better than that either. Um, 2 on target for the Albion, 11 on target for United. 5 shots blocked for United, 5 off target. Uh, one of our shots was blocked, 3 of ours off target. Rashford had more shots on his own than Albion did in their entirety. Um, it was incredibly poor. It was incredibly below par today. Uh, and I think it was... It's funny because when you watch us um, against Chelsea, and I, I said on, on the podcast, I thought that we were comfortably outplayed by Chelsea. I thought they were incredibly good. Uh, I think they knew exactly how to really put us under pressure. They pressed us hard. They caused us a lot of problems doing just about everything they did. It was it was a really tough day at the office for the Albion. Today, however, definitely feels a lot more like we invited the pressure onto ourselves. United did not press in the way that Chelsea has. Uh, United did not attack in the way that Tottenham did. And we put three past Tottenham. Uh, United were happy to sit back up until about the halfway line. It was our pass. Anything passing past that halfway line was absolutely atrocious. Uh, we just could not get anything going forward whatsoever. You know, we had uh, the top five players for passing. Three of them are Albion. Matt Ryan, Stephen Alzate, and Shane Duffy. I'm not exactly sure what position Stephen Alzate was supposed to be playing in today, uh, but he didn't play in any... He didn't seem to really have any effect on the game whatsoever. Uh, quite often, I forgot he was even there. Uh, we let them dribble. Uh, they had 19 successful dribbles on us today. That is more than any other game this season under the Albion. Uh, even Chelsea didn't have more dribbles against us than that. Uh, we were dispossessed 16 times. Uh, we allowed them to get five corners. Uh, we we won the aerial battles 11-3. to three. Um, But overall, it, it really just paints a story of a team that just played to every single... Uh, strength that Manchester United could have. Um, we played a very flat back four against a team with incredible pace uh, up front with Rashford, Martial, Pereira and James and they tore us apart time and time again. It was really poor. Um, and not only that, but going forward, we showed very little uh, industry. You know, Connolly didn't really do anything at all. Uh, Mopai looked isolated. Even when he had people with him, he looked isolated. Um, we played far too wide for a team that, you know, has a ton of players that can play up top. We chose just to play no one there. You know, Mopai and Connolly were all over the place. Um, the amount of times I saw Connolly make him runs down the channel where Trossard should be, Trossard playing as a left-back and Burden moving into centre-back um, was just unbelievable. I just, I just did not understand anything that was happening in this side today. And it's especially frustrating because, like I said, we, we were outplayed by Chelsea, but it doesn't feel like we were outplayed by... Manchester United today it felt like we outplayed ourselves we were really poor we could not string a pass together we you know our pass success rate is 81% today it's very dishonest I feel because most of that was just passing around the back as soon as we got to our midfield and looked to pass forward our passing was absolutely atrocious um, moving on to the players themselves I you know it's, it's not been a good day for anybody at the office today um, Martin Montoya was an absolute disaster at right back today he was just terrible he was ripped apart by Marcus Rashford today Dan Byrne not much better lucky not to see a second yellow both of those players with challenges they were putting in uh, Martin Montoya subbed off at half time Aaron Connolly, very poor game today. 15 touches in the first half. Atrocious. Glenn Murray, 10 touches in the second half when he came on for Connolly. This just really shows how, how isolated they were up there. Um, they, they 
they didn't look like they knew where they should be playing or what they should be doing when they got the ball, you know? Um, key passes, you know, Alzate had two key passes. Uh, Trossard had two key passes. That was the most on the team. Nobody else had any at all. That's that's as bad as it gets. Uh, the player with the most shots today, Lewis Dunk, one on target and, of course, a goal. Um, and he wasn't even that great today uh, I thought he was kept caught out of position an awful lot uh, I thought that Shane Duffy was caught out of position the the fact that they seem to have switched uh, from left and right central half center half seems to really be playing with them um, they don't seem to know which side they should be going on an awful lot and for two professional footballers you'd think they'd know um, Matt Ryan probably is the only one who uh, who gets plaudits today um, I thought Matt Ryan was very good uh, the second goal was incredibly unfortunate. You know, uh, I know a lot of people have really gone in on him on social media saying that that, that goalkeeping for the second goal was incredibly poor. But, you know, there's there's a lot better goalkeepers than him that are going to get caught out in a goal mass scramble. So I'm not going to kill him too much for that, um, especially because I think he made like nine saves um, throughout the game. Some of them were absolutely brilliant. Uh, and there wasn't a great deal he could do with half the other goals. Uh, the first goal, let's talk about the goals. Um, the first goal was a, is an absolutely horrific deflection. Um, really sums up our season beautifully in a goal like that. Uh, we started off slow, they came forward and that goal, that deflection was just so unlucky. Um, nothing anybody could do and it just bounced on in, uh, one nil. Second goal, um, another solid advertisement for VAR. Uh, it was quite clearly offside. Uh, offside. It was quite clearly a handball. Um, and I know a lot of people have come out and said it wasn't clear. Um, but when you look at the replays uh, on the television, you can see one very crystal clear thing. That ball did not hit Lewis Dunk in the head or Harry Maguire in the head. It hit both of their arms. Um, and it's crystal clear as day. Like, it's not, it's not something you can dispute. It's not something that VAR should have been able to go, oh, I'm not sure, it's really close. Um, it was incredibly obvious that it did not hit either of their heads. Um, and there was both of their arms were right in the middle. Uh, so to say that they could absolutely say that it only hit one arm and it wasn't Maguire's is just ridiculous. Um, it was quite clearly a handball, quite clearly by the laws of the game, whether you like them or not, that shouldn't have been a goal. Um, and it just leads us to the same problem as we had before. Uh, it doesn't matter how many referees you have at a game, if they all have the same subjectivity bias towards big six sides. Um, VAR was something I thought last season was going to help us uh, with, with top six sides getting strong decisions in their favour. Um, but the way it's been implemented, as usual, uh, has been an absolute disaster. You know, we, we are sat here... Watching a team like Sheffield United play excellent football yesterday on Saturday um, and be judged offside because somebody's toe was offside, apparently, according to uh, the Premier League. And yet every single picture, frame on frame, nothing conclusive proves it. Uh, and that was, again, at White Hart Lane. Again, another top six team getting the benefit of the doubt to rule out a goal. Now, thankfully, Sheffield United scored again. Um, so it didn't matter. Today, thankfully, we were so bad, we deserved no points. Um, but that isn't the same every week, you know? And teams are going to get beaten and they're going to lose points due to this nonsense on the cameras. Um, and something needs to be done. Something needs to be changed. Uh, the discontent is growing incredibly fast. Um, you can see it everywhere now. Uh, pundits, analysts, professionals, ex-professionals, ex-referees um, are all over the last week or two really starting to speak out about just how bad VAR is in its current form. Um, and I can only hope that, you know, sooner or later we get some kind of uh, overhaul or suspension or something for VAR um, because it's just not working. Uh, and at that point, you know, we're 2-0 down with 20 minutes gone at Old Trafford. What, what, at what point are you supposed to try and get a point from a team like Manchester United at Old Trafford uh, when you're 2-0 down that early on? So, you know, I thought we saw out the rest of the half pretty well. Um, we recouped. We kind of reconvened. Re re I'm not sure what you would say. Uh, but we, we finished off the half okay. Um, 
And then the second half started, we started very brightly. Two very good substitutions. Uh, well, I say very good. Two very positive substitutions from Potter. He saw that it wasn't working. Brings on Solly March and Glenn Murray. Uh, takes off Aaron Connolly and Martin Montoya. Martin Montoya definitely should have been t- taken off. Uh, Aaron Connolly, you know, someone had to go and it had to be him, I suppose. Um, I probably would have took off Trussard just because you were playing him in such a poor position. You may as well have just not bothered. Um, but... On comes the, the double substitute, uh, and I thought we looked a lot better in that second half until we scored, actually. Um, I thought that we were very positive. Um, we played the ball incredibly well, and I thought that we were, you know, on our way to doing something useful. Um, you know, we had 64% possession from the second half, beginning of the second half, until the goal. Uh, we had 64% possession. Uh, we had 79% pass success rate compared to their 69. Uh, we won seven successful tackles to their three. Um, we dispossessed them. We outdribbled them. We got more. We played much better than they did up until the goal. Um, and then, of course, they always say the old, the old phrase of uh, your your most uh, most vulnerable one you've scored was uh, incredibly true because we just got hammered uh, immediately on the counter attack and they went ahead and scored um, something you really can't afford to allow a team like Manchester United to do something that I pointed out for a long time um, that they were dangerous at doing and we allowed them in on the counter attack over and over and over and over again anyway um, so. Not a lot of fun stuff to report this week against uh, against Manchester United. We were comprehensively outplayed. Um, it truly could have been seven or eight, and people wouldn't have even blinked if they'd watched the game. Um, Rashford missed another couple of sitters. Uh, there was a lot of teams, that, a lot of uh, opportunities that Manchester United could have really hammered us on, um, but they didn't. So, <sighs> moving on. Um, we have a lot of tough games coming up, um, and next up is Leicester. So Leicester have um, an incredible away record of late. Um, lately, uh, they've been really in control of their away record. Uh, of course, that 9-0 comes to mind, right? They, they <laughs> embarrassed uh, Southampton. So let's take a look at their away record. Um, they have played six games away from home and scored 15 goals. Uh, of course, if you take the nine away, it becomes a little bit more reasonable. Um, 12 shots per game, eight yellow cards. They're roughly averaging about 54% possession uh, and an 80% pass rate. So this is a team under Brendan Rodgers that has undergone an incredible uh, recalibration. Um, they've been really good, uh, but they are not infallible Um away from home so they drew uh, away at Chelsea good result early on in the season um, they got a win against Sheffield United just 2-1 the week after um, they got a result 1-1 away at Newcastle um, in the League Cup uh, they hammered and then they went on to hammer um, Leicester beat Southampton 9-0 and then Crystal Palace 2-0 last week. So Leicester are in a hell of a vein of form. Um, they've won their last five on the bounce, including the League Cup, and they have us next. So outside of their Premier League winning season, I don't think there's many times that they've won six on the bounce. Um, their home record, of course, a lot better than their away record, uh, and that's something that we need to be hopeful on, um, that we can really do something with. You know, they're going to have to... Uh, they're going to want to come and attack us, um, and it's going to be a game that we're going to have to be able to defend well, hit them on the counter-attack, kind of do a Leicester to a Leicester. Um, Brendan Rodgers has them playing great football. We're going to have to work really hard to uh, to get anything on Saturday, but I think it is our best chance of the year to do so. Um, best chance of the year. Best chance of the four that we have. So looking at their strengths and weaknesses, um, they are incredibly weak at defending against through ball attacks, um, something that we are actually pretty good at doing, um, and they are very poor in the air. Now, looking at what they do do well, um, they're incredibly good at finishing their scoring chances. Um, you give Jamie Vardy more than one chance this season and it's a goal. Um, they're incredibly good at defending set pieces in general. Uh, they're very good at stealing a ball from the opposition, something Potter is going to have to be very aware of, given the fact that we like to keep the ball a lot. Uh, they're incredibly good at keeping the, uh, coming back from losing positions. Uh, there's been quite a few games this season where they've been in rough spots and have come back to win or get a point at least. Um, they're very good at attacking set pieces and then protecting a lead when they have one. Um, 
Leicester are a very good side, ladies and gents. Um, and they're a, they're going to be a tough team to play against. They're generally playing a 4-1-4-1 formation. Uh, again, very similar to the formation that they used to play uh, in the year that they won the Premier League. Um, Wilfred Ndidi has taken over the Angolo Kante role. Um, we have Perez out where Mares used to be. Uh, Tielemann and Madison in the middle. Harvey Barnes on the left. Uh, and Vardy, of course, up front. Um, their back line is incredibly good. Um, Ricardo Pereira and Chilwell are two of the better fullbacks in the league. Uh, the new lad, Soyunchu, um, who's in my fantasy team, is doing very well indeed. Uh, and of course, Johnny Evans um, is, you know, as safe as it gets as a centre half. So we have a hell of a game ahead of us next week. Um, and we have a heck of a lot of adversity ahead of us because Lewis Dunk has now received his uh, fifth yellow card, which means he is suspended next week. Uh, next week, the week after, against Leicester. Um, and Adam Webster, of course, has done some damage to his ligaments, uh, which is going to put him out for roughly four to six weeks. So we are now left with just two uh, natural centre-halves that are any good, um, and that is, of course, Dan Byrne and Shane Duffy. Um, I am incredibly interested to see what Potter elects to do uh, you know it's going to be ambitious because that's who he is and what he likes to do. So, you know, I liked uh, I like to think that Bernardo may well be fit. Um, if Bernardo does come back and is fit, I suspect that he will probably then play some kind of role uh, in that back line, maybe as a, another centre-half. Um, but we need to go back to our back three if we're going to start winning games again. Um, I think we've been incredibly lucky at 4-4-2 a couple of times, and today really showed Byrne is not a left-back. Trussard is not a left midfielder. He is a winger attacker, um, and Alzate is not whatever he was supposed to be today. Um, we need to revert back to the three at the back that played so well at the start of the year um, and has done so well whenever we've changed to it late on in games um, and really get something going. I think Aaron Moy definitely has a shot to uh, come back into the team. I thought Dale Stevens was incredibly poor today. Uh, I thought Proper wasn't much better. Um, I think Aaron Moy will be a little hard done by if he doesn't get a recall into the squad, into the starting 11 uh, after this week's absolute shit show. Um, so I'd like to see three at the back. Um, ideally, we will probably see uh, Montoya out at right wing back. Um, Duffy, Byrne and Bernardo at centre-half. Um, Solly March at left wing back playing where he was at the beginning of the season. I really like him in that role. I really wish he would be played there again. Um, I would probably stick with Dale Stevens and proper in the middle. Um, you know, I'm, str I'm struggling to think of a, uh, if it was me, I would play Moy and proper in the middle. Um, but I don't think that Potter will do it. I don't think Potter's going to drop Dale Stevens. Um, so I think you're probably looking at Stevens and Proper in the middle. Um, and then a front three, again, uh, you have options there. And I think that Trossard, Mopai, Connolly, Gross, you can play three of those four up front uh, and actually play them up front. And we should do pretty well against the Leicester side that are incredibly dangerous. What scares me is the lack of pace at the back. If Bernardo is not fit, um, I have no idea who the hell plays where. Um it worries me greatly that we may see Gaetan Bong in some some uh, capacity. That worries me intently. Um, but, you know, international break is now coming up. Uh, next up after this, uh, we have the Where Are They Now segment again uh, with me and Robin. We have uh, this week a look back at three of our French stars. Um, and, yeah. Have a good weekend. Uh, have a good rest of your week and the week after. Um, trying to cook something up for next weekend. Uh, fingers crossed we can get something going. Um, if the Brighton media team could please reach out to me after 8 million emails requesting things, that would be great. Uh, if anybody has a contact at the Albion, please have a word. Because I'm really nice and polite when I send my emails. And they always ignore me despite saying that they get back to me in 48 hours. So that's sad. Um, but that's all from me. Uh, have a good week. Sorry it's a bit on the fly. Um, tried to cover all the important numbers here today. Tried to cover all the important stats and just a little bit of thoughts and feelings uh, on the game. So have a good week. Peace. Week number two of our yeah. Where Are They Now section. Uh, 
So we we decided to go with uh, a couple of players that all kind of coalesced at the Albion around the same time-ish, two of them for sure. Um, and we went from the Argentinians to the French uh, group that we had in. Uh, so which one do you want to start with today? I think I'm... Let's kick off with Alexis Berta, I think, because he's okay. a very interesting one. He is one of those players that I really enjoyed when he was at the Albion. I thought he was great. He showed signs of being a really quality player um, when we were in League One. But he left at the end of the season. He was only at the club for six months or so. And it, was a, it seemed to be quite annoying that period of time being an Albion fan that you would get glimpses of really good players who would either come in on loan or on a short-term basis and then we couldn't get them to sign on you know on a more permanent basis and he's yeah he's a prominent in my mind when it comes to that yeah he's it's spot on uh, it was the 2006-2007 season which would have been who was our manager then Mark McGee again uh it would have been Dean Wilkins I reckon you are correct. Yep, it was his first season. Uh, and it was frustrating because he played primarily as a defensive midfielder, right? Um, yep. And he came from uh, one of our best friends Havre. for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were a club that we had a little uh, romance with for quite some time, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, Because I feel did. like we had a lot of their players coming over that kind of time frame. Well, one came just after Alexis Bertan left, which is a player that we've not included in this three. He's probably unlucky not to make the cut, which is David Marto. And Alexis Bertan and David Marto are actually best best friends growing up. I've been doing a bit of reading, so yeah, that was the Le Havre love affair. So yeah, he joins on. Uh, he jo- I don't. I can't remember if we had deadline days back then. I don't know when the window started. He joins on the last day of January in two thousand and seven. So probably the last day of the transfer window. And he signs on the same day as Nick Ward, who joined on loan from QPR until the end of the season. And Alexis Bertin signs on until the end of the season as well. And unlike, I know last week, obviously we were, we were talking about Federico Turienzo signing and we had a, a few questions around whether we actually scouted him properly as a club. The quote on the BBC Sport website for when Bertan joins is from Dean Wilkins, who says, I've seen Alexis play for Le Havre and he has a good pedigree. So that's already, even if that's the only scouting we did, that's already one up from from Turian. <laughs> we have started to grow as a club. <laughs> yeah. In some way, shape or form, it is definitely a positive. Uh, yeah, in so he, in the joins, right direction. he joins on the... Um, Joins right at the end of that January window, signs on loan to the end of the season and, or not on loan, I should say, signs. We take over his contract until the end of the season. Makes his debut at home to Rotherham in a very depressing nil-nil draw. Comes on for the last 17 minutes. That is his, uh, his, his eventuality into the Albion. I, I, have, I do have one very specific memory of him playing. Um, I'm going to be interested to know if it's the same one I have. My memory is, um, I think it would either have been, it was pretty early on in his, his career, one of his first few games, which was Leighton Orient away. And the reason why it sticks in my mind is because it was one of, it was one of our best performances of that season. We won 4-1 away from home against Leighton Orient. And I just remember him being really good in that game, like just keeping everything ticking over, just being really tidy and looking like technically like a really good player. Um, looking up the stats of that game, he started in a midfield three with Dean Hammond and Nick Ward. And we had an absolutely glorious front line of Dean Cox, Joe Gatting and Baz Savage. Oh, what front, yes. What a front three that is. Yes, back that is four, a that is a lot of names that will be appearing on this show, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we had a back four of Guy Butters, who seemed to be playing right back. Not sure about Yikes. that. Yikes. Adam Elabd, <laughs> Joe Lynch, Joel Lynch and Sam Rents was our back four that day. And we somehow managed to tonk Leighton Orient 4-1. That just, that just speaks volumes <laughs> as to what that Leighton Orient side must have looked like, really, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> Goals from Dean Hammond, Baz Savage, Joe Gatting, and Dean Cox. So, yeah, I remember him playing in that game and being very neat and tidy. 
Um, that's what's your specific memory of him? See, I can't remember what game it was. I just know it was at the Withdean, and he he was playing in the midfield as usual, and he cracked one off the bar. And it was the only time I ever saw him do anything attacking. And I can't remember <laughs> for the life of me what game it was. But it's when whenever we brought up Bertan the first time, and I was like, he's the guy that smashed it off the bar when I was at the Withdy. And it was bad weather, <laughs> and it was just bad all round. And he was the one player that stood out as a good player. Same as you like, at Orion, he stood out. And as a player that's supposed to be an anchor man, he had a hell of a shot from that yeah. in that one game that I can remember. Well, um, terrible weather at Withdean, dreadful game, narrows it down to probably 80% of our games at Withdean. Yeah, yeah. Could, have been, could have been any of the 23 we played at home that season. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so he leaves, disappointingly, he leaves at the end of the season. Um, and I've actually found in the course of my research an article um, that Brian Owen wrote in... 2008 beginning of 2008 so this is about eight months seven eight months after he leaves uh, yes. he's obviously done an interview with alexis bertan and bertan's basically saying um i made a massive mistake in leaving is the gist of it so he he eventually leaves the club and he goes to join at the end of that six months he was with us he leaves and signs for a club in the french second division called guenyo um and basically it all goes incredibly wrong for him there very quickly so he his initial desire was to stay with the Albion at the end of those six months he gets offered a one-year contract by the club with the potential for a second year based on uh you know performances and etc etc uh his agent basically tells him not to accept the deal and tells him that he's got various other clubs in England who are interested in him, one of whom was Nottingham Forest. Not sure where, I presume, I think Forest would have been a championship club, most probably. Yeah, you've got to, th- you've got to think they would have been at that point. But, or at least, I know they did have a couple of seasons, in, well, a few seasons in League One, but yeah, they're either a championship club or top-end League One. Basically, better prospects than us is the bottom yes. line at that point. So his agents basically said to him, look, I've got this offer from, uh, from Nottingham Forest, so there you go, what have you got? And it turns out basically that 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 wasn't uh, that wasn't totally accurate, and that there was no no contract, no offer uh, from Nottingham Forest. So once that happens, he then comes back to the Albion and says, "That one-year contract you had on the table before, um, can I have it?" And Dean Wilkins said, "No, you can't." <laughs> Which I can understand because you know, for the, from the club's image point of view, you know, it doesn't look good. Basically, if you're then allowing people back into the fold who have basically left and and gone no i've got better got better things than you so yeah we didn't um we didn't sign him so he didn't sign for nottingham forest he doesn't sign for us he goes off to have a trial at luton doesn't get a contract there and then ends up at guenyo in late september and that the club are already in the relegation zone in the french second tier uh, yes doesn't really get on very well there three weeks after he signs the the manager who signs him gets fired um, so generally, it uh, didn't go very well for him. No, and so then a... <laughs> and then he had a trip to. I see. He then had a trip to Bulgaria. At least in yeah, my uh, they're quite my big. Well, yeah, they're a club that I recognise their name from being involved in European competition over the last few years. Yes, um, Lytex, so right? Yeah, Lytex, so they're quite. Yeah, they're a big club in in Bulgaria, and judging by the number of appearances, it doesn't seem like it's worked out for him there. Um, so yeah, he's he's kind of another one of these ones who's bobbed around through various different clubs in the French league, and as far as I can see, is now playing for a club who I've looked them up on Google Map. They are basically in Le Havre. They're in the, seem to be playing in a suburb of Le Havre, um, and they yes. are called. Uh, I've just lost it in my notes. Um, Octaville, Siemens, is it? Yes, so I I saw that too, um, but I also found him on Twitter, um, and had a very small chat with him. Um, I tried to get him on the show, but he has not yet responded. So we may have uh, him on at some point. Um, but he on his Twitter, his profile actually says that he is a former professional footballer. Oh, interesting. And he is now uh, he is now a manager of the Orange Blue La Havre City Centre um, okay. in English. 
in English. I've translated that. So, <laughs> uh, oh well. So he's he. I mean, he's thirty nine now. So he's yeah, definitely getting on a be, bit. Yeah, would be towards the tail end of his career. So again, I mean, the theme that's developing through all of these and is probably a byproduct of the you know the standard that we were at the time, which is none of these players have gone on to do anything particularly remarkable in their career. Right. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'd say it was quite. It's quite sad reading this article. And he he says basically, I made a massive mistake. And I think it's written in February. And uh, he says, I'd love to have come back in January when they lost the Irish midfield player who was George O'Callaghan. Um, oh, another blast from the past. So yeah. it's a bit sad that basically it's another case of someone's basically been done over by their agent. Um, probably symptomatic of you know anyone looking at our you know the facilities and the infrastructure that we had or didn't have as a club at that point you know playing it with Dean still no real realistic prospect of that at that point of getting a new stadium you know no training ground so you know if you're an agent and you've got a player that's come in and done you know done a decent job for six months you can probably see the appeal of trying to get them you know basically use Brighton as a springboard to prove that you can do it in England and then you know trying to get him a deal at a bigger club so I can see, obviously, that's the, the curse of the agent, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's absolutely. It's not worked out for him. And you say the, the other quote that stuck out uh, in this article um, is the fact that he basically says he's from, you know, his local club is Le Havre. Um, uh, but he's, he feels more affinity to Brighton, even after six months at the club. Which yeah, is a bit strange. It's... And he do, he does. Uh, when I spoke to him on Twitter, he actually has uh, an absolute badass-looking chair that he's had made uh, with his Brighton shirt like embedded in it. Um, so he definitely has a lot of. Uh, it seems that that's also a theme that's coming out. The mid two thousands, even though we were an absolute shit show of a team, really, um, the the camaraderie was clearly very yeah. high for the players Absolutely. that were there because they all loved it. <laughs> So, yeah, I think wrap, wrapping up on him, he was another player that actually probably, if we'd have kept him, I mean, this is different. Obviously, you know, Baz and, and Batapiedi and Tirienzo, we talked about last week, were players who we let go on our terms because we, the club, you know, whatever, for different reasons, the club made the decision that they weren't going to be, you know, long-term prospects in the squad. This is a bit different in that, He's come in for six months. He's played quite a number. Of, he's played 16, 17 games. So he's played most of the games in the second half of the season, has done very well, has played 90 minutes in most of the games, barring his first couple of games where he came on as a substitute to sort of ease him in. He's played yep. 90 minutes in all the rest of them. And the club have wanted to keep him. And then he's said no, or his agent said no. So it's a bit different. This is a, he is a player that I felt that if he stayed he would have become an even more important part of the squad than he showed in, in six brief months. Yeah, he could have had a very, very different career ahead of him. Um, and I think we're going to see that with a couple of them here. So uh, we've got two wingers to bounce onto um, that really were at the Arbion at the exact same time. Um, and when we got relegated, uh, I think it was in 2008, um, one of them left us and one of them stayed. Um and that's kind of a story for both of these. If if one if the one that left us hadn't, he, he, who knows where he could have gone to. So who do you want to start with? Uh, Frutos or Corral? Um, let's go with Frutos. Corral's quite interesting, so we'll, we'll save him for the end. Yeah, Corral has an absolute, like, pages upon pages of stuff. Like, he is a very yeah. well-documented young man. <laughs> yeah, which is quite good. So Alexis Frutos arrives for us. He plays in that 2005-2006 season, which uh, is the season we discussed last week where we finished bottom of the league. Yes, signs so from Turien- It's the same. It's the Turienzo season, isn't it? It's the same one. Yes, yep, exactly. He, he plays quite a bunch of games. He plays 36 games in that season, um, scoring three goals, but we, we finished bottom of the league. So I think what you're referencing is he decides to stay at the end of that season. Yes, signs um, on for another year. Yeah, whereas Seb Carroll um, decides to... We'll come on to him in, in a few minutes. But yeah, Seb Carroll decides to leave for Pastors New. So, Frutos obviously stays on for that second season. Dean Wilkins comes in as manager. And, 
yeah, it doesn't seem to go very well for him in that second season. Only makes a handful of appearances. Judging by his career stats, he must have made nine appearances, if my maths are correct, in that season. Yeah, and um, it's surprising, isn't it? Because he went from thirty-six games, three goals in the Premier in the Premier League in the Championship to like ten at best in League One. Yeah, and that's really surprising because you would think it that is. a player of that quality, and we I can remember him as nothing more than a hard worker and someone who really put like flashes of really good play. Yeah, so I it's say a he had surprise. a very good. He, he came from Mets and had played quite a number of. He played. According to his Wikipedia, anyway, he played 65 games for them. So he's another one who comes in at a decent age. So what would he have been when he signed 2005? So 37 now. So he'd have been early yep. 20s, really, when he signed. Yeah, he'd had, a, he'd had a lot of, uh, he'd had plenty of pedigree. He'd made 56 yeah. appearances in the second division in France. And he'd even played 35 games in the top flight in yeah. France. So, I mean, this is a hell of a coup, really, to sign him. Yeah, considering you know well obviously brought him into the championship so to get him at, i thought it was a good sign at the time and obviously you know he showed no one really excelled themselves in that season when we finished bottom um no <laughs> obviously you wouldn't expect anyone to in, in a season that's gone like that but you know he's played 36 games and he looked you know he didn't look out of place at, at that level of football as much as can be expected given you know how the season went he's a disappointing one really and he's another one he who could probably have made a bigger impact. I don't know if Dean Wilkins just didn't didn't fancy him as a player or whether there was some kind of falling out or, you know, whatever it was. But it's clearly not worked out in that second yeah. season with us. It's interesting too, because in the article I found on Sky Sports of uh, the way we, we, um, we signed him on for another year, um, and Dick Knight said himself that he had uh, he wanted to see a lot more from him this year after we've been relegated under Wilkins and he was excited mm. for his future. And Wilkins obviously turned around and went, nope. <laughs> yeah, no. Which is uh, and that that season in League One didn't go especially well. We finished 18th. Yep. Uh, six points clear of the bottom four. So it's symptomatic. That season didn't go especially well. But given that was the. That's the season we've just been discussing with Alexis Bertin. And, um, yeah, if you look at the squad that we had, not necessarily a great surprise. No, not at all. Like, I found a uh, Telegraph article as well in which the, uh, Frutos actually did come on um, and promptly got himself sent off as well. So, Oh, excellent. Yeah, it was a cup game against Blackpool. Um, and the booze rang out around the with Dean, apparently, and uh, it's a good job that uh, they say uh, they say the Brighton manager Dean Wilkins can count himself fortunate that he has already been promised the job of replacing Mark McGee until the end of the season uh, because everything just went wrong. <laughs> and we had a very similar side to the one you were talking about. Um, we had Andy Wing, El Abd Butters, Gary Art came on. Uh, we had Kerry Mayo playing left winger, apparently. I'm not sure how accurate that was. Uh, Alex Ravel. So, yeah, not very good. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, he, uh, he's, another, he's another one. I say I don't have many specific memories of him. I don't remember that red card, but it may have been a game I went to. But, yeah, just general disappointing that another player who comes in with a very good pedigree and shows flashes of of definitely being up to that standard, for whatever reason, it doesn't doesn't work out. Yeah, and it's, it's kind strange, of It's symptomatic it? of all of this, isn't it, that a lot of, a lot of the players that we're going to mention were signed with quite levels of high levels of excitement and it just emphasizes the massive turnover in players that we had generally lots of people didn't stay for very long at the club you know for lots of different reasons and i suppose you know that's that's kind of juxtaposed against now isn't it where really for the last four or five years um we've had certainly the spine of the squad you know, we we generally keep the same squad from year to year, obviously, because, you know, they're high, they're highly prized assets. We're not signing them on loan or on free transfers for half a season. So you, it's another one of these where we compare now to then. Kind of take for granted having settled squads and knowing exactly who's going to be, or, you know, having a very rough idea of who's going to be around from season to season. 
Yeah, and it's it's wild really because I know that when a lot of players left, the idea was that they were leaving for for better places. Um, yeah. Or they thought they were leaving for better places, and I think a lot of agents that we were just talking about probably were like, "Look at this! Look at this ground! Look at this stadium!" Uh, like you where know, we don't know to. where they're going. Yeah. We don't want to waste our time here. We've got X or Y available, and they never come through because uh, Frutos. Um, obviously, he wasn't being picked out by Wilkins. Uh, he left the club at the end of that year. Um, and after that, he really has just uh, chilled out in Belgium ever since. Yeah, um, I've seen that. He, he's been another one, taking a tour of various lower league clubs in Belgium. Yeah, he's made almost 100, uh, 100 appearances for the Proximus League, which I believe is the second tier in Belgium. Mm. Um, so like, he's played quite a bit of decent level football, at least, especially when you compare it to the dire football we were playing in League One. Um, yeah. To be going to the second division of Belgium and, you know, contributing like 13 assists, 11 goals, 96 appearances for the yeah. rest of his career. It does make you wonder just what what did Wilkins miss out on there? It just yeah. seems a strange one. Yeah, as I said, I don't know if they've had a falling out or anything, but say it is a, it is nice to have seen him go on and have, a, as you said, a decent career at a, a fairly decent level when you compare that to last week's. You know, Christian Baz disappearing off the radar, essentially. And obviously, you know, Batipiedi's had decent decent um, levels of football as well. But maybe, you know, this is this is someone in Frutos who you feel like maybe his career could really have continued at a higher level. Yeah, but I think you're right. I'm glad that it continued at least at a very decent level uh, for what yeah. he was and where we were at the time. Um, yeah. Whereas our next man, Seb Carroll, uh, cannot share those same ideas. Um, and he, no. was someone, he was someone who left with uh, a little bit more of a cloud over his head than Frutos but kept, did. He kept coming back and back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, if we talk about pedigree, Seb Carroll's come from Monaco. And obviously, yeah, he was, you know, nowadays, he was a Monaco renowned, prospect too. Yeah. Nowadays, and obviously, you know, in, in, recent, in recent times, Monaco as a club have ticked over by selling, you know, vast numbers of players for an awful lot of money to lots of big clubs across Europe. Um, so obviously, you know, Bernardo Silva being a, being a fairly recent example of that. Benjamin yep, Mendy as well, I think, came from Monaco to City. So been a whole, whole, they've had a whole bunch of big players. I think they've had Jao Martinho. I think he, he went from, see, from there to not a, you know, not a youth prospect. But, you know, they've had you know, massive numbers of decent players that have come out of Monaco. So I imagine... I haven't looked into this, but I imagine their, you know, their kind of youth academy has been fairly highly regarded for quite a long time. I don't imagine yeah, overnight I mean, you suddenly start producing players like that. Exactly. Um, I mean, they, he, Kylian Mbappe came from Monaco too. Oh yeah, I of mean, course. That, yeah, that year, got, yeah, that year when Monaco like were they were insane for two or three years in the French league um, yeah. in like the mid twenty teens. Um, and like you said, like it's not something that they've just just suddenly adapted this is a team that have really had no choice but to develop their youth and he was obviously one of them um he was there since he was 14 years old um and then to add to the pedigree he was chosen to go out on loan to uh west ham in the premier league oh, yeah which is madness isn't it really Although yeah having said he made one substitute appearance yes no he goals time there. nothing no else goals. <laughs> um he did say so it did play. I'm just reading. So he makes, he then goes back. He makes nine appearances for Monaco's first team, including playing in the Champions League and the UEFA Cup. Yeah, and he's scored part a goal. of the Monaco squad that reached the Champions League final in 2004. Doesn't yes, play in the uh, final, but obviously you know he's played. So his pedigree is another one. His pedigree is ridiculous when he arrives at us. So he rocks up again. He joins 2005 in that summer, same as Frutos and Turienzo and everyone else that we've talked about, joins on a two-year contract. He plays 42 games and we finish bottom. Did you, ever, had... did you ever manage to find out what the undisclosed fee was? Because I never saw what that fee was. I had a look around in a bunch of places and a lot of them were totally unreliable. Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't make much progress. But I mean, it's difficult because obviously, you know, last week we discussed that six-figure fee for Turienzo. I'd imagine, I, don't, I, I was going to have a guess, but I, I don't even know. It's not based on anything. I don't imagine it would be enormous um, at the time. But who knows? Who knows, really? 
Yeah. Um, Forever. So, yeah, so he joins <laughs> and then he obviously we finished bottom of the league and he activates. It can't have been very much if we gave him a, if he's got a relegation release clause, um, you know, at the end of that season that he could just yeah. activate and off, you know, off he goes. I can't imagine we would have, you know, lumped a, an awful lot of money on him with such an easy get out clause for him to just terminate his contract and go. Yeah, exactly. And I see that uh, it was actually a deal that we did with Frutos too. We also gave him a release clause. Uh, he was one that chose not to activate it. Um, mm. So I guess it was just a difference in opinion, I suppose. Um, but after that, he uh, he went to Leeds. Uh, yeah. And generally the idea was that we've lost a good player um, and that he was going to go on to bigger and better things. And for a very small amount of time in football years anyway, uh, for two years, it was right. We we were right in our guesses. Um, and then after that, it all kind of went to pot for him. <laughs> yeah. Which is exactly right. So he seems to have had a massive falling out with Dennis Wise. Yep, which I, I can understand. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't <laughs> think there's not going to be a small list of people that have had a falling out with Dennis Wise. I've just found an article just now whilst we've been chatting um, which is on a website called Planet Football. Um, and this is an article that he, this is an interview that he did only last year, 8th of March last year, where he talks about his time at Leeds. Oh, um, and he says the 2007 2008 season, which is when Leeds reached the playoff final, was the best time of his career. Um, he still lives in Yorkshire now, which we'll come on to that in a minute. 10 years after he left Ellen Road, he's still hanging around in Yorkshire. Um, basically, the gist of it is that um, Dennis Wise thought he was lazy, seems to be. Oh, so right. he signs his three-year contract. Kevin Blackwell's the manager at that point. Kevin Blackwell then um, gets sacked fairly swiftly. John Carver, who was uh, <laughs> had that disastrous spell with Newcastle a few years ago, takes over as caretaker <laughs> yes. manager, uh, doesn't play then. Then Dennis Wise comes in with Gus Poyet as his assistant manager uh, yes. and basically says uh, says that he Dennis Wise said he was talented, but he was French and a little bit lazy. And Classic. Good one. <laughs> so that's it. So off he um, went to Darlington after that. Yeah. Um, he had a trial with Bradford City, didn't work out, uh, went to League Two side at the time, Darlington. Um, yeah. Played seven games with them during two months and then left in January. Yeah. And then promptly popped back to the Albion. <laughs> Which is odd, isn't it? So yeah, that, and that it was really because he is. was reunited with... Must, then he comes back to Gus, doesn't he? Is that when Gus yes. is boss? I think that's his first year. Yep. Yeah. So he's obviously, he's obviously thought he did all right at Leeds. Um, and yeah, has, has obviously signed him. And then um, the weird thing is he then goes to Nice, who were in the top yeah. division in France at that point. Um he, I'm just reading a quote from this article. He says, my agent said that Nice wanted to sign me and I couldn't believe a League One side were after me. Neither could we, Seb. Yeah, <laughs> fair comment. <laughs> that he signed and started, he said, I signed and started playing for the reserves, but I was constantly injured. Something which had never happened to me before. So obviously he gets lots of injuries, doesn't really play, doesn't make a first team appearance, comes back to England and plays for Berry. Um, and the reason that he joined Berry is that they were managed at that time by Kevin Blackwell, who obviously signed him for Leeds. So yep. that's the reason that he rocks up back at Bury. Um, but he says that obviously at this point, he's still living in Yorkshire and having to drive each day to Manchester to play for Bury, and he's hardly playing for them. So then uh, he leaves them, stays in Yorkshire, and starts to play Sunday League football, unbelievably, for a team called Burton Leonard Squirrel. Yes, what a name. I noticed that too. I know what last a name. week we said a few things that we talked about were bizarre. And I'm going to put a shout in that I don't think anything will be more bizarre in this segment than one of our players playing for a Sunday league team called Burton Leonard Squirrel. Yeah, I mean, why the squirrel on the, na- on the end of the name is just yeah, beyond exactly. me. But imagine, odd, isn't it? imagine being one of the lads showing up for training at a Sunday league team and this lad coming along and you go, where have you come from? And he goes, I've just been playing for Nice. <laughs> yeah, and then Barry and all this stuff. I mean, the, probably, given the fact he's playing local football in Yorkshire, I'd imagine a fair chunk of people that he was playing against would probably, 
if not recognise him, you know, by sight, would definitely recognise his name. You know, having played three years at Leeds and made, you know, making quite a number of appearances. So anyway, he rocks up in Sunday League for a while, then goes on to play for Knaresborough, Geisley, Bradford Park Avenue, finally Tadcaster Albion, which is a nice little, nice little bit of symmetry to end his career on. Yeah, for real. Um, I also saw that he, looking at his teams, you know, he's a bit of a, a harbinger of death here. He came yeah, to us. I was thinking he the came same to thing. us in the 2005 when we were really on our ass. Uh, no money, no uh, well with Dean and all that stuff. And then he went to Darlington when they were still in League Two prior to their mess. Then he went to Tramia uh, for four games, where again just prior to them really getting into big trouble. Um, he then went to uh, had appearances at Berry, who, as we all know, have had what's happened to them happen. So, honest to God, I'm not sure I'd be wanting to sign Carroll after seeing that hit, hit list that he's got on his record now. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Just say he then. So then he, he was, he's retired. He then goes to set up a, a soccer school in Leeds. Yes. Under nines and under tens. Uh, and now he's working as a football intermediary, which, as far as I can tell, is an agent of sorts. So Ooh, according okay. to this article that I've been reading, he then he so he runs this soccer school with a friend of his. Yep. And his the friend that he's running the soccer school with is also an agent. So I'm I'm guessing that this guy's running this agent is running the soccer school to basically try and pinch all this young talent that's coming through, get them signed up to his agency, at, you know, under you know under 11s, under 12s before they can get into an academy. So he then says to Seb Kroll, "Do you want to be an agent?" Seb Kroll says, "No, not really," because the direct quote he said is, "I said initially no because I thought all football agents were sharks." Good for him. Direct, direct <laughs> quote, which is admirable. So then he goes on. He says, basically, I, I didn't. I told, kept saying no, didn't want to be an agent. But he said, what I would do is look after young players and try and help them make it. So from purely from a footballing point of view, rather than trying to be the standard agent, you know, trying to get them deals here and there, he's looking. He's basically a mentor. Is effectively what yeah. he's doing. So now he says, I look after young French players in France in the MLS in the Premier League and the Championship. All right. Well, so his son is also there as well. Uh, yeah, so his son's I see still at Leeds. Keenan Carroll plays for Leeds United's Academy, yep. Yeah, um, so again, he's a, an interesting one, isn't it? He's a very... Did you know? Quite... Did you know we made a double signing when we signed Carroll and it wasn't uh, Frutos that we signed at the same time as him? Uh, I found an old, actually, seagulls.co.uk article of the day we signed him, Friday, August 12, 2005. We signed another French prospect that year. So we must have been loving the French prospects in 2005. Ooh, ooh, was it a goalkeeper? It was. Florent Chagno. Yes. Yes, it was. Much. He did not do much at all. I just remember him being enormous. I think he was like six foot seven, six foot eight or something. Anyway. Yeah, he's leveled as, uh, he's leveled as six foot five, uh, came from Stad Ren and uh, had an option to buy, which we clearly didn't do. Um, and the big deal was that he had played with uh, Florent Cinema Pungol. Uh, from Liverpool, uh, and Anthony Latalek, also of Liverpool fame. Oh, wow. Uh, he played for the French youth sides with them all the way from 15 to 21. And he, like them, went on to do very little. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, Sab Crow is an interesting one to finish on because he's, I think, because he's, he's done such varied things. He was probably, you know, of the three, he's those two years that he spent in the championship after leaving us, he's probably had the most successful career since and it's probably you know he's if you look at he not many players that we're going to touch on in this segment are going to have played in the champions league and the uefa cup so if you look at his pedigree what he did for monaco even though you know he only made a handful of appearances they're obviously at a very decent level he's then come on to play for us again not looked out of place in the championship has decided that he's good enough for the championship has left us gone to leeds had what looks like a couple of really decent seasons at Leeds so yeah he's probably the most successful of the of the three that we've talked about today and obviously he's got quite an interesting quite an interesting after career story given the fact he's still living in Leeds you know 10 11 years later well you know 12 years later now and doing something quite interesting with his career so yeah I think fair and play Burton to Leonard um, Squirrel isn't something I'm gonna forget in a hurry Oh, right uh yeah considering he did leave under a bit of a cloud and I think it was very much like 
across the board that we were all disappointed that he left and to go to Leeds of all places who, yeah. you know, nobody well, really likes Leeds. Club so, the world, aren't they? so you can, I mean, you it, I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you turn <laughs> down a chance to go and play for them? And I suppose without, you know, flip it, all flippancy aside, this is a time I'd imagine this is fairly soon into Leeds's championship life as an, I can't imagine they got relegated that long before he joined. I've got a, I've got it in my mind that they went down kind of 2003, 2004, potentially. That's a wild let's a guess. Look. Uh, um, let's have a look. They went down uh, in the 2003-2004 season. Yes, sir. So he then signed. So it's only a couple of years after that. So, I mean, he's joined, he's not just he's basically gone from us, a team that finished comfortably bottom of the league. And he's been picked up by a team who, you know, have been in the Premier League and the first division for an awful long time, you know, barring the last couple of years. So you can absolutely see from a footballing point of view why he jumped at the chance to go there. Because, you know, realistic yeah. ambitions of playing in the Premier League, basically. Yeah, 100%. And I, and I mean, back then, you know, the thought was that it wouldn't be long until Leeds went back to absolutely. the top flight. And now and we're still waiting. We're delightfully waiting. <laughs> cool. Think that yeah, that about now. wraps it, dude. Yeah. 